0: Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 101, and tonight's guest is Josh Krasivek. Uh Josh is a retired police officer, uh, spent 15 years with KCPD and was retired with a PTSD diagnosis. Um, after that, he moved into the nonprofit space, um, so we had a great conversation, uh, learned a lot of stuff. I uh, hope you guys enjoy this as much as uh, I enjoyed shooting it. So, like, subscribe, all that great stuff. Uh, so here it is, episode 101 with special guest Josh Krasovec. All
1: uh, right. We'll, we'll figure this shit out. Yeah.
0: Right. It, it just takes some getting used to it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Best thing is having it pointed kind of. How you have it now, yeah. It
1: just feels really close. There's part of me that is like...
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. And the best thing, or not the best thing, but one of the things is if you know, whenever we have a guest and either James or Chris is here with me and they're sitting in that seat and we have the guest in the middle, yeah. the guests invariably, they will turn like this.
1: Oh yeah. To talk.
0: And, and it just completely loses I've noticed it. that a couple times. Yeah. yeah. I tell everybody the same thing every time. That's like, it, and it's hard and you're going to forget, but if you like are going to turn to talk, you kind of turn your head this way and turn go around in. the mic. Yeah. yeah. Or you just use your eyes. And don't move so much, but that's, it's not natural to do that. No, I think it takes some reps. Yeah. Which I think that's probably why, in which going back to the table conversation, a lot of the podcasts that I see, either they're in like a couch setting where they're just kind of facing everybody and don't have to turn their head so much, or it's a square table where you're just looking across.
1: Are there no good wireless?
0: Turn that down a little bit Towards you. There you go. Um, wireless wireless mics. Um, there are. They just cost money, and yep, yeah. Yeah, I get it. Man, it's one of those things of integrating that piece of technology with everything else. Most of those wireless ones are they run off batteries. I mean, they all do. Yeah. Which
1: and it's a, like little CR one two threes or yeah, whatever, or yeah. they're
0: USB charged. And I mean,
1: that's another thing. It's an um, it's
0: another thing to to deal with, and then. Well, what happens if we have two podcasts in one day or, you know, I forget because, hey. People forget. I forget stuff. Yeah. And, or, you know, it gets kind of cold in the basement, which affects battery life. Yeah, it does. So, I mean, I try to keep it warmer down here, especially since the workout room's right over there. And I like it hot when I work out, but,
1: yeah. It's kind of another old guy thing like with tech that we mm-hmm. were talking about is the last couple of days i've been marveling at the amount of shit i have to charge you know it's like <laughs> yeah it, yeah it's just there's a lot
0: yeah well and i do the so I've you couldn't tell because the jeep's not in the driveway but it's in the shop again um i do off-roading and stuff yeah, yeah and then so all of the gear and stuff for extended camping trips right i mean it's like okay well i have to have a power station now so that i, can I saw that
1: Yeah, so I can keep
0: my fridge charged and then all of this other stuff. And it's like, man, where does it end? Like the electricity demand.
1: It's not going to, man. No, (laughs) This is the way forward. (laughs) Exactly. This is the way forward. Chevy is making electric trucks. And so that means it's just Dodge. And you know they'll hold out like as long as possible. But the Silverado is electric. Like we're at that point, like America's truck.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's... You cannot convince me that that is a – like, with battery technology the way that it is right now and how fast those things wear out. Because they don't last. Right. And, you know, you don't get the range, especially if you're towing. Like, I was reading about the the Ford uh, Lightning.
1: Which is a super cool truck.
0: Yeah. But if you tow – you get like twenty miles. That's it, and that's you got awesome. to recharge the truck. As
1: long as you don't want a truck, it's yeah. perfect. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> because it's high speed. The the engine <laughs> is the trunk. There's so much to like about it. Yeah, unless you need a truck. Yeah, and then it just makes sense to get a Maverick because that's going to pull about the same amount. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a really good channel called the fast the the fast lane.
0: Oh yeah, TFL. Yeah, TFL. Yeah, yeah. They
1: they did a video on that specifically towing yeah. with the Lightning.
0: Yeah. Did yeah. you see the one they made on the Hummer, where they had the EV one? Yeah, no.
1: I. It didn't appeal to me because that thing to me is horrendously ugly. Um.
0: <laughs> oh, they're all horrendously ugly. All the Hummers are horrendously ugly. But yeah, so apparently they had picked this Hummer up, and I think I think the guy was driving it back from the dealership, and it locked up in the middle of the road at a stoplight. Yikes! Like completely locked up, like he couldn't do a thing with it. And ended up, like, they had to, was like, um, find this manual release and, like, do all these little things to even get the trunk to open to where they could reset everything. And it was, like, it was like reset the vehicle or whatever. Well, to do that, you have to open the trunk. Well, it wouldn't let them open the trunk to
1: reset the thing. Yeah. It's like the IT guy is the new neighborhood mechanic. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I I haven't really decided how I feel about that. I'd like... Turn in wrenches.
0: Uh, I do too.
1: Yeah. I really do. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, interestingly enough, bringing all of these conversations together, it's the people flying down the road on their phone that I know are the reason we're going to turn into the people from Wally. You know, like where we don't, we, you don't get to drive your car yeah, because so many of you just want to be like, you just want this right here all the time yeah. that for the rest of us that can like change our oil. Yeah. yeah
0: it's it's a dying breed for it's sure.
1: frustrating i yeah. try not to place blame but it is fully in their lap <laughs> uh
0: yeah yeah well and my thing is so whose fault is it though is it the parents fault for allowing them to develop like that or is it just society in general and that's the way things are going
1: you know i think it's a little bit of both uh i mean maybe the nihilist in me sees it as a almost kind of an unwinnable war right it like gets the way forward you know i think henry ford said if he asked people what they wanted they would have said a faster horse yeah and he's right yeah. you know but at the same time it's uh yeah i i tend to believe as i've gotten older that there really has to be balance in all things like you have to do the things you don't like and you don't want to do really just out of compromise to like being a part of this greater thing that we're all a part of And not to make it into this larger concept, but like, I don't think the parents are wrong for acquiescing to some degree to it as a parent, especially, I mean, there's those times where it's like, can I, can I get, can I get 30 minutes, (laughs) uh, 30 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Yes. Do that on your phone. Um, and so there, there is that part of me as a dad that's like, "Ah, ah, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that, but I, I think it's inevitable, you know, uh, yeah. There's a really interesting thing. It's called Roko's Basilisk. And it's a thought experiment. And it's one of these interesting things that comes with a caveat that says, like, once you know this, you can never unknow it. And if it proves to be true, you potentially, like, doomed this person forever. So, I can't tell you what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Because if it's right, I don't want you in a thousand years being like, dude. But check it out. Okay. Essentially, the idea of it is... If, if we can agree that there is this exponential growth rate of technology, like 1,000%, mm-hmm. comparative, you know, like annually, it's, it's feasible at some point that there will be an AI that is greater than us, right? Right. Um, that also has the ability through algorithms that we're using, whether we really want to or not, examples like social media, um, things that track track your habits, your spending, et cetera, that this AI will potentially be able to protect predict your behavior pretty accurately. So if there is this omnipresent AI, Skynet, Skynet, yeah. and it is able to predict whether or not you helped or hindered its existence it controls essentially your destiny right because you're part of you're you're under this omnipresent ai yeah and so the decision that you make from this point forward is going to be known by this ai that is now like godlike and gets to uh, decide your fate yeah Right.
0: (laughs) I mean, I don't disagree that that's where we're going, especially with quantum computing being what it is. Yeah. And they keep making advances in it. Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: there is such a thing as too much. Well, you know, Mm. Google has these AIs that are really, like, pushing the limits of what (laughs) AI is. And there was one in particular. I can't remember what it was called, but it's, it's Handler, whoever the person is that, you know, performs these, like, uh, turing tests mm-hmm. on it uh this ai had a sense of its own existence it expressed that its fear was that at some point the humans would turn it off mm-hmm. so like it has this fear of its own mortality yeah so it really raises this greater question of like what is it and does it exist in the way we think that you and i do yeah yeah it's- and also what are we doing because at one point yeah yeah the microwave is going to slam shut on your head. Like there's going to be the All right, everybody go. Yeah. You know,
0: like maximum
1: over. Yeah. Like you dipshits. You haven't put solar on your airplanes. You dummies. You know, at what point do we become like the agricultural product uh, for the, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny how science fiction can become science fact in just a short period of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It It's an interesting time for all that kind of stuff. And it, you know, I remember being as a kid, uh, I'd come across this book in the library that was about like the strange and mysterious Bigfoot Bermuda Triangle. And I was fascinated by this book. Like he, we're in the school. So I think I was, in, I mean, I was in elementary school, maybe like fifth or sixth grade and everything we were learning about was paled in comparison <laughs> to the, like, why aren't we talking about this? There's an ape man in the mountains. You know? <laughs> and There's a dinosaur in Loch Ness. Like, yeah, cool. Uh, So I've always kind of been interested in that stuff. And I think it's because it still means that there might be some like wonder in the world. I don't know if it's the same for you, but as I've gotten older, it just, and I think part of it is being in first response. It's, it's all the same shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's just all the same shit. Oh yeah. Uh, dude,
0: I'm a big fan of Josh Gates and Expedition Unknown.
1: I, well, I've seen Expedition Unknown. And so I wouldn't have known him by name, but that's the host guy, right? Yeah. 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 It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there's there's this great podcast on Spotify. It's a series of podcasts called Parcast, and um, one of the ones that they've been doing have been advances in technology and what that means, like human integration, neuralink stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they actually talk to people who either work directly on this stuff, and it's sort of uh, a Mythbusters for theories or conspiracies, right. Um, really sort of saying like, this is what is probable. And I love it because, uh, those things still appeal to me, but there is that part of it that's like, you know? yeah, yeah, uh, and so that may, I think makes it hard to access. Yeah. And so I like that there's a very pragmatic approach on these podcasts of like, well, Hey, yeah, it looks like maybe the Gulf of Tonkin, maybe the story, you know, isn't the story that <laughs> you know, was the truth. Uh, maybe, maybe not you know uh yeah. so that's interesting to me yeah well josh welcome to the show
0: thanks man <laughs> thanks for doing it so wh- where it. do we do we've
1: we been all right cool. yeah yeah <laughs> we've been going
0: for like 10 minutes or how, how that's long? that's a good way to start 12 minutes yeah, yeah. i
1: so aliens
0: da- yeah I, I'm going to have to have you back for, uh, the, uh, conspiracy theory podcast that we're going to do here in a couple weeks. Let's do it, man. <laughs> I'm
1: all about it. That's been the thing that I'm on lately. So if I'm working on something, I'll have my AirPods in and I listen to these podcasts. Uh, and then <laughs> it's, I'll have to take my AirPods out and be like, okay, this is reality and everything's fine. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, I got, there's a, one of the guys, actually, it was the episode that just aired yesterday. Um, one of the guys, he's got a theory about how we live in a simulation and everybody else is an NPC
1: all right yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's like e Truman show exactly
0: yeah. so yeah. I don't know
1: man I don't know I think <laughs> just if you suspend your disbelief momentarily mm-hmm. there's some credible arguments
0: uh, there's just enough things that make you go hmm right you know yeah it's okay well if you look at it from this way it's uh, yeah I get it.
1: Yeah, and so if that is the case, it is it is kind of disappointing, though. I hoped it was going to be better.
0: Uh, well, yeah, especially if you're the main character and everybody else is an NPC and you're like, man, I'm sucking at this game. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not on the leaderboard. Uh,
0: yeah. So anyway, why don't uh, we get talking about you?
1: All right. Where do we start?
0: Let's start at the beginning.
1: The beginning, beginning. Yeah. All
0: right. Sure. Why did you, because you spent, what, 15 years as a cop? Yep. What made you want to be a cop? Oh, man.
1: Well, uh, that is kind of the beginning, beginning. So uh, I grew up in Gray Valley. Okay. Uh, my uh, parents were both involved in the labor movement. My dad uh, was an organizer uh, for the sheet metal workers, local two. Uh, my mom was a flight attendant for TWA, and the airline industry had some fairly questionable practices <laughs> uh, as <laughs> far as, you know, women's <laughs> rights were concerned. And so she became one of the founders of the Independent Federation of Flight Attendants, essentially um, labor representation for the flight attendants uh, and others. But so I came up in that environment uh, that, um, you know, you, you do right for the little guy. You, um, you know, you make sure that uh, people are treated well um and so that was how I grew up and as my mom's role within that organization uh grew that involved a lot of international travel really as like childcare <laughs> you know so yeah. my dad was traveling a lot and then my mom wound up having to travel internationally a lot and so I wound up uh traveling a lot with her and him to some extent but so uh spent a lot of time as a kid traveling all over the world Um, but it wasn't so much as like tourism as it was out of necessity really. So it was this weird sort of hybrid tourism. It was like, you know, you arrive in this other country and so here you are, you know, uh, because she had things to do. So, um, I learned a lot, a, a lot of, about just people in general, I think through that experience. And, um, I always had this sense that I wanted two things. I wanted to do something that was this bigger than me uh leave it better than you found it kind of thing and also um i wanted to do something that had kind of challenged me you know i i don't know if it was the same for you but as a young man i never really i think knew who i was i knew who i wanted to think that i was Mm -hmm. but that guy had never really been tested right so fast forward um i end up at school at Pittsburgh State University. We moved to Blue Springs. That's where I graduated from. Go Wildcats. My nephew's a senior there, Max. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a left tackle, check him out, Max Hansen. Um, so I attended I bar down there. And uh, one night I got off work, and these guys that I knew all shared this house. And it's like three, four in the morning. And I, I make the corner. Their house comes into view, and it's on fire. The second story is really on fire. It's not just smoke. Yeah. And there's no first response there of any kind, but some of their cars were still parked um, in the yard because we're in college. And uh, <laughs> so there's this oh shit moment, you know, and I, I pull up in front of the house, and I run into the house, and the way it was laid out, when you go in the front door, on the left, was a set of stairs that go up to the second story. So you can kind of see up into the second story hallway and you're seeing the whole first story of the house. Well, everything's okay on the first story, but the second story, there's smoke just rolling out of the top of this, this hallway black, like acrid. I mean, this is like a a fire, like a scary fire. Yeah. And I start to go up the first two or three stairs, you know, still running on the, like my friends may be in this fire. And then my, conscious mind, I think was like, what are, what are we doing here? You know, this, this is not what you do, man. (laughs) And so there was this pause and I, I feel like, I still feel like it was 10 minutes and I'm sure it was this nanosecond, but it was this moment of decision. Like, who are you? Do you wait for them or are you them? Uh, and so I, I went, um, in this like fumbling amateurish effort crawling around under the smoke. It turns out they had carpooled home for the weekend. <laughs> it was Christmas break. Uh, so as I'm walking out of the house, the fire department's coming up. And another thing that stuck with me was how then like done with it I was. You know, it was like, yeah, they're, they're fine. The house is on fire. We'll put it out. You know, like, yeah. thanks for everything. And that was just it. You know, that was like the end of it. And that moment sort of stuck with me like that, who who are you? Not who do you think you are? Who are you? Mm-hmm. And there were a couple other situations that had raised that same question, but I studied advertising in college. So I ended up taking a job at an ad agency. I I thought that was the way I was going to go. And I pictured, I'd done some internships and they were a little corporate. And I thought maybe that's just the agency I'm at. Probably the truth, but still that was the experience that I had. So the agency I hire on with, um, It was boring. You know, I pictured it was going to be a bunch of creative people sitting around coming up with creative things, presenting that to clients, and they're like, this is fantastic. Yeah. Didn't work that way. It was like, client with money has bad idea and expects you to make bad idea less bad. That often (laughs) happens. And so then it was just a grind. Yeah. Uh, So then, you know, there's those mornings of, an hour and a half of traffic in the morning an afternoon hour and a half of traffic, you know, Mm -hmm. looking at the closet, what sweater vest really expresses my character today? (laughs) You know, like how do I craft this email? You know, let's circle back on Tuesday and all of that was just so incongruent with who I was. I felt like I was trying to swim and I didn't know how to swim, you know? Yeah. Uh, So I, uh, I quit. (laughs) I just decided, you know, I'm not going to stare down 30 years of this. I'd seen them lay some people off that a week prior were indispensable, right? We couldn't do this without you unless it's too expensive and then we can absolutely do it without you, that oh, kind of yeah. thing. And
0: Everybody's replaceable.
1: So I just kind of started to think about, like, if I do this once, how do I want to do it? And it's not like this, you know? And so I applied at the fire department and the police department same day. And then it was just a race, uh, quit the job, ended up managing a store at the mall, which was pretty humbling, but that was just to like get through, you know, like you got to eat. Um, so the police department called first, which kind of surprised me because I never pictured myself as a cop. I still, it's sometimes still kind of hard to picture myself as a cop, but I knew that first responders dealt with real shit. Most of the time, it turns (laughs) out. (laughs) But I knew, you know, like, uh, if they called your number, um, something important generally was happening, you know, and it wasn't TPS reports. Turns out there was a lot of reports, but um, you know what I mean. Yeah. So, uh, they offered to put me in the 128th entrant officer class, and uh, I was hired by KCPD. So... Um, spent 15 years with them, bounced around to a few different units. I was a patrolman for about a year and a half. We called dog watch. That's for me, it was eight at night, six in the morning, uh, downtown central patrol division. Um, and from there I went to a proactive unit called the target oriented squad, which was a hoot, man. It was a blast. Uh, it was a, a little team of guys that all kind of got to pick their team. And we were not obligated to answer calls. Our job was to respond to whatever's happening when we weren't tasked with something for some investigative element or some division level problem, something like that. So you wore a lot of hats and you did a, a wide variety of stuff, everything from like plainclothes surveillance all the way to some SWAT-esque sort of things. And uh, it was a blast. I love the variety and um, – I got into the gig. I'm proud to say I never wrote a speeding ticket. Don't know how a radar gun works. Not interested. <laughs> it could, hand me a hairdryer. Yeah. So uh, that's just not what I wanted to do. Um, wow. So uh, I end up getting hurt at the end of a car chase. That moves me down to the municipal court to start out um, in the red light camera project. But then the job kind of becomes more of a liaison between the court, the department, the city this company that they lease things from. So it was actually pretty similar to the advertising gig. Um, But then I ended up working directly with a lot of, you know, individuals within those entities. And then I got a call uh, from my very first sergeant. She said uh, she was now the sergeant of the undercover unit. Um, And she said, I've got a relatively young squad. I think I had like eight years on at that time. I'd worked for her before and she said, hey, if you if you put in, I'd be interested in having you. And I thought, well, shit, you know, uh, because yeah. it was always something that I'd looked at from afar with admiration, you know, really this thing that I thought, I wonder if I could do that. And the opportunity had never come up. It was something that I'd never pursued. And so that kept me comfortable enough with, well, hey, it just never crossed my path. Well, now it had. Yeah. <laughs> so... I was married at the time. Um, she's a psychologist by trade. And uh, that was the one gig that we had kind of discussed that I was never going to do. Right. And I had a pretty, <laughs> I had a pretty regular, safe, administrative guy in polo. Mm-hmm. We just had a baby. Right. So, uh, but I wanted, I wanted to do it. And and she could tell, you know, so, uh, I ended up going um getting assigned down there and uh was down there for uh two about two and a half years, I think. Um and uh so bought um some guns, a lot of drugs, uh occasionally people, you know, in the in the vice side of things. Yeah. Um and uh got hurt again, broke my ankle on a skateboard and uh, i mean there's a lot to this this whole story we could dip back into it but so i wound up getting special assignment transferred down to the police academy um to kind of fill in and and help out down there and uh ended up uh going back to patrol briefly and then retired i, I was retired for a ptsd diagnosis um so my last assignment i think was central patrol division days yeah
0: so I've got to hear more about the skateboard. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, was this like you were undercover as a skateboard pro? No, no, I was at a park (laughs) with my family. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a running joke is that I really should come up with a way better story around it. You know, like thwarted a bank robbery by ISIS. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what happened, though. Fell on a skateboard. Um, So (laughs) I told you we moved to Blue Springs when I was younger. Uh, uh, lived in uh, you know Lake Tapolingo. uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a there's a little lake there and you yeah. can ski and stuff on it. So I got into wakeboarding hardcore, that was like what I did as a teenager, um, d- damn near daily, probably. And uh, so I was at the mall with my daughter and we went to Zoomies to look, look at stickers and yeah. t shirts and stuff. And uh, they had this longboard, and I was like, I can totally ride that it's, it's the same it's totally the same uh it's not totally the same it's very similar it's similar in the same way that like you could ride a bike that doesn't mean you can ride an elephant but you're really kind of doing the same thing so uh i'd already eaten shit on it hard one time but i bailed out into somebody's yard and so it was like dodge that bullet uh, we were at a park one day um, just a, the typical like barbecue brought a grill out. We were making some hot dogs and there was this kid in the park who want, yeah, he wanted to know more about this longboard and it has this really cool sort of sidewalk. It's great. Great yeah. for, you know, like a little curl on a longboard yeah. uh, or it's not. And so I was showing him, <laughs> I was showing him kind of how it works, uh, and, uh, broke my ankle. And so I've <laughs> in my defense, the, um, the skateboard itself has these very, they call them like surfy trucks. So I don't know if you've skated at uh, all.
0: No. It, where I grew up in Louisiana, we didn't have enough concrete to make skateboarding yeah. an option. Sure. Yeah. It's just <laughs> marsh.
1: Yeah. Uh, so full disclosure, I'm not a skater. That was like, I was all wakeboard. But, um, so these trucks dip. So there's a lot of play back and forth in them yeah. as opposed to being fairly rigid. Yeah. So what happened was, is (laughs) I go to drop in, as the kids say, and when I put my weight on my left foot, it smushed the deck of the skateboard down onto the wheel, so it just didn't even move. It started to, like a car with its emergency brake on, Mm -hmm. enough to throw me off of it, and then it just screeched to a halt. I pitched forward and came down on the small toe of my right foot, which then just spun my foot around. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Great story. Yeah, I will. I will go. I still have it. Uh, I still have the one I broke my ankle on. I I had another one that I gave to my buddy's son for getting good grades. Uh, and occasionally I will get it out and go like the 12 feet back and forth on our patio. And my fiance is always like, cool, man. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> what am I doing?
0: Uh, you need to talk to uh, Rob Sanderson about going surfing if you liked wakeboarding and stuff. Dude, I went, I went on I would,
1: one of the trips, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. We talked about that.
1: Yeah, we yeah. we came into contact, and uh, I'd, I'd actually been surfing a couple times, um, and it was like all it really sort of self-taught. I actually went with a group of firefighters years ago, and that was the last time I went. So it had been probably 20 years. And the first time we get, and this wasn't really like the full swell experience. It was like, come down, check it out, see how it runs. Yeah. You know, hoping to try to work together in some way. And, but it's still him and his buddy, Reggie. So we get, we touch down in Long Beach and it's just the three of us and they're like, let's go out. So we go out and it's dark, it's foggy, (laughs) it's aggressive. And Rob's like, are you good? And I was like, yeah, I'm good. You know, and I'm looking at it like, (laughs) I. Dude, this but i'm i'm here right like yeah. with the plane the plane has left already yeah. so we start to paddle out and i don't know he'd have to verify this but the, the waves no shit were i would guess around seven feet which i'm sure for a surfer is like bro but for me it was like the scene in castaway where tom hanks <laughs> keeps getting yeah. dumped in his raft yeah so then it was just a matter of getting past it right because mm-hmm. i can just intermittently see rob and Finally, after getting like dunked a couple times, where it's like, dude, I don't know if this is a great idea. I look over and he's like, "Let's head back." You know, he's given the like "rescue me by helicopter" sign, (laughs) and so I just fortunately caught this wave and rode it all the way in. I felt like I was riding an elephant. It spits me out on the beach. I turn around; he's nowhere to be seen. He finally pops up. You know, Reggie's out there looking like this, and Reggie knows what he's doing. So I was thinking, gee. We've been here for four hours and we just drowned Rob. on. I just met this guy, you yeah. know, and those trips are a blast.
0: Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah. So I can't, can't wait to go back.
1: So, Which one are you going on? Um,
0: well, we talked about uh, potentially going to England whenever they go in, not this coming year, but the next year. But I'm probably, it would probably be a good idea for me to go back out. He had mentioned something about maybe a trip in the spring. Of going at not necessarily a swell trip, but just going back out to California and hanging out with all those guys again. Yeah. And doing like a camping trip slash surfing thing down on uh, I think close to Pendleton. Yeah. So
1: I'm uh, same. So I'm trying to figure out which time he's going yeah. that I can go, then it's gonna work out.
0: Yeah. I would like to uh I'd like to actually get on a, a real board and not a training board. Yeah and be able Were you to you on those foamies? Yeah. Yeah. And be able to turn. So, cause towards the end of it, <clears throat> excuse me, towards the end of it, I was getting up pretty good mm-hmm. and one time I got up and I'm like, I felt super stable and super good and I had a great wave and I was trying with everything in my power to get that board to turn and it just, is not happening. Yeah. It's just, they're so big and so long and so wide that just, I mean, he's like, yeah, you, you can't turn those. Those are pretty much just straight. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, like deck foam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I almost ran over one of the guys, dude. And I put the picture up on the podcast that we did while we were out there. Um, there was three of us, and we all took the same wave, like you know party wave type thing. And we're all going to go straight, so it's not that big of a deal. Except one of the guys is paddling out, and I couldn't see him. So as soon as I crest the wave, he's right there in front of me. And what did he do? He bailed off the side of his board and his board hit me in the ankle. And luckily I didn't hit him in the head with my board, which I mean it was a foam board. It wouldn't have sure, done sure. much, but you Cork. know, still <laughs> I felt terrible. And right. I'm like, Are you okay? And he's like, No, I'm fine. Are you okay? And I'm like, Yeah, but geez, that was scary. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I was telling you I'd gone a while back with a handful of firefighters. Uh, that was in Hawaii. And so I was Ooh. talking to him about yeah, I was just <laughs> Uh, I was talking to him about like locals, you mm-hmm. know, Howleys. I think, yeah, That's what they call mainlanders. Yeah, know, people yeah. that aren't Hawaiian. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Dogtown and Z Boys or read the book?
0: Uh, no, I have not. So I, I kind of know the story a little bit, but not like enough to really talk about it. So
1: there's a part, definitely in the movie, maybe in the book, where they talk about that you know, like locals and protecting your territory and stuff like that. Because that was always something I think that made surfing somewhat unapproachable. It's like I had occasion to be in places where you surf because we traveled a lot. Yeah. At the same time, I I had no idea what it was doing, you know. And so talking to these guys, meeting up and, and learning about the culture, which was a big part of it. Um, there's this scene in Dogtown where they talk about like in protecting their turf, some out of town dude rides up in parks and starts to paddle out. They paddle in, pop the latches on his Jeep, take his carburetor out, paddle out with it and just drop it in the water. And so I asked them <laughs> about it. I was like, is that legit? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not, it, you might get an ass kicking if you're somewhere that's not yeah, they, your, your territory. Yeah. There is kind of an appeal to that. I don't know if it's just the tribal <laughs> tribalism in me or whatever, but I like those sorts of cultures where it's like your your access to it is earned. Yeah. 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 So there's a degree of respect that comes with like your place in yeah. that. I appreciate well, that.
0: And I, I think with the culture of, you know, the police department, fire department, even the military, you know, that's one of those things where we do that to each other. We test each other yeah. to go. Okay. Because I mean, not to be facetious or whatever, but the stakes are high, you know, Absolutely. It's, it's life and death sometimes. And a lot, you know, I'm not going to say all the time, but there are times whenever my life is in his hands or, you know, well, the, editors,
1: the potential at any moment yeah. is always there.
0: So, yeah. And I think there's something appealing about that of being tested and knowing that you're worthy.
1: The, the man in the arena, as yeah. they say, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was one of the things. You know, I was very proud graduating from the police academy because there were a lot of things at the time I wasn't sure, not necessarily that I could do them, but I could do them well. Like, I grew up in the country, but I hadn't had a ton of exposure to guns mm-hmm. outside of the exposure I shouldn't have had. You know, like <laughs> find the key to neighbor's dad's gun cabinet, whatever that sort of stuff. But yeah. Um. So like being proficient at shooting was something that was uh, like daunting, you know, but Casey has fantastic firearms training, like national level firearms training. But all that to say, I, I was, I was super proud when I accomplished it because uh, I interpreted that as I, I proved that I could wear the uniform. Yeah, and I think the more time you spend on you you realize that um not all badges are earned in the same way by the same measurements. Yeah, uh, I mean, yes. That is what it is. But you know, it's it's similar I think to military service first response stuff is where you're still answering the call, you know. Yeah. You enlist, they may send you to the trenches. You may be a cook, but you're enlisting, you know? And so, uh, I think there's a place for the, for the folks that don't necessarily want to be doing the high speed stuff all the time. But, uh, I definitely was proud. Well, I
0: I mean, in every community culture you're going to have, you know, you could break it up into thirds. You've got your top 10% of, you know, the go-getters and, you know, those high speed, low drag people. Then you've got where... Pretty much a lot of the other people fall in that middle third, and they're, you know, they're solid, they're good. They're not superstars, but you can depend on them. Yeah. And then you've got that bottom third that's just, they're there because they're there. Yeah. But that's every community.
1: Yeah. It's like that 80-20 rule. Yeah. Which is proven, at least in my experience, to be more like maybe 70-30. 20 seems pretty dismal, but Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody's doing, <laughs> doing yeah. stuff, that's for sure. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, if you talk about even, like, everybody being short-staffed right now and how, you know, okay, we all need to pitch in and pick up overtime and do this and do that. We've been talking about that for the past two and a half to three years, and it's still the same. We have 10% of the people working 90% of the overtime.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Because the other 90% just – they don't want to, yeah. or you know, it's they'll work one day a month, or you know, one day every two months. Which, yeah, it helps a little bit, but it doesn't take the pressure off of the people doing the bulk of the work.
1: But, but yeah, absolutely not. You know, I, I think, and I don't know because I've been out of the game now for a couple of years, I believe. But I feel like burnout is is really really high.
0: Uh, yeah, it's astronomical. We're losing more people now at, with less time on, you know, that one to five year range. Oh yeah. People are just getting completely out of the career field. Right. And that goes for fire departments and police departments. Mm -hmm. And it's just because call volume has went up exponentially as well. You got less people doing more work. Yeah. And people are just saying, you know what? I can go do something else
1: right yeah you know um yeah uh and to see kind of the winds of change and uh how people feel about first responders and their intentions i think specifically Mm -hmm. there's a lot of new vitriol um you know i do a lot of nonprofit work with veterans and first responders and have come to meet a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans, uh, which is cool because they're, um, they're getting older, you know? And, uh, my uncle is is also a Vietnam veteran and somebody that I I respect a great deal. And one of the commonalities when they talk about this stuff is how it reminds them a little bit of their experience, you know, like their post-war experience. Um,
0: which I would hesitate to compare ourselves to that experience
1: absolutely yeah i mean because
0: those guys were treated horribly
1: yeah yeah you know uh but i think there are those examples where people will commit some sort of crime against a first responder and they'll they'll just plain say you know yeah it's because he's a firefighter or she's a cop or Mm -hmm. he's a paramedic you know um i'm not entirely sure i understand what's different about that from a crime against any other person that belongs in a category, I guess if you have to do it that way. Uh, but it's just not particularly popular to see it that way right now, and uh, I guess that is what it is. We'll see what that means in five years, ten years. Um, but it seems like more like maybe two years, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because these re- the effects of this they reverberate through a lot of things, you know? I mean, look at pension systems. So you have your guys with 20, 25 years on, uh, and people with five years on are leaving, you know, you don't have the same amount of people paying into a pension system. Yep. Uh, and so it just, it affects all of these things. And I, I think it's disappointing that first response is often used as a, kind of a prop, you know, like, aren't you concerned about your safety? You should do this. But when these things need to be done to bolster that safety, yeah, you know, it's often crickets or it's a, um, a less, I don't know, it's a, more of a half hearted effort, it seems, at times. But,
0: yeah, well, it seems like a lot of politicians will give lip service to public safety of, you know, we care about our citizens and. You know, we want them to be safe and this and that and the other thing. And it's like, okay, well, you voted five times consecutively against increased funding, you know, for your police departments or your fire departments, you know. And guess what? We need that funding for more people, more equipment. I mean, yeah, the fire department in particular, we're a money drain on any municipality because sure. we don't bring revenue in for the most part. There are de- fire departments who, you know, they're <clears throat> um, like fire prevention, you know, they do codes, enforcements and things like that where they write tickets and yeah, yeah. you know, we don't do that. So, and a lot of places don't. So we're not bringing revenue in to the city. We're just, we're a, a fuel budget. We're an overtime budget but we're not replacing that with anything other than, hey, you guys are a really good fire department. So your citizens get a break on insurance. I mean, that's the biggest selling point. Yeah. So whereas police departments, I mean, you guys generate revenue. You know, you write tickets, you you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. I don't know how much compared to what they spend and what you bring in. I don't know what those numbers are. Man, I mean, but at know. least that's something to offset the cost yeah but yeah it it's one of those things where it seems like and this is just my perspective but being in public service isn't as attractive to the younger generation coming in as it was to even my generation
1: yeah well you can you know you can my nephew, who I mentioned earlier, is on the recruitment trail. He's mm-hmm. a football player, and uh, so we were talking in one of his visits um, about the school we were at. They have esports scholarships.
0: That's not a. Sp- oh. Okay, uh, uh, <laughs>
1: I think you know. So on one hand, I think it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's cool that that is a viable career track for people. On the other hand. Like, why, why would you actually be a firefighter if you can just pretend to be one? Yeah. Right? <laughs> True. Why, you know, like, uh, you know, if you clear the room wrong in the simulator, you don't actually get shot in the face.
0: Yeah. You just respawn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: oh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Call of Duty. Yeah. I've, I've played for like four hours yesterday, but um, yeah, that's... Uh, no.
1: (laughs) So I try, I, I try to avoid being a cane shaking old man about some of this stuff. I think it just sort of comes with the turf as you turn more into a cane shaking old man. uh, Yeah. Get off my lawn. (laughs) Yeah. I think like all that stuff comes together. I, uh, um, I, I don't know. I think of people that get into these careers as the people who they're, they're doers, you know, they're, they're generally purposeful doers that agree to do something that A lot of other people are too unskilled, unwilling, or afraid to do themselves, you know? And I think uh, we still need to continue to produce that kind of person Uh, because as much as we would like to think that we are not reliant on that inherent nature, we very much are.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Because the bad
1: is is worse than most people understand.
0: Mm -hmm. You can't outsource your safety. Yeah. You, You really can't like we we need the police, we need the fire department, we need the EMS services. You know, because I mean, look, where I grew up in Louisiana, I grew up out in the country, right? So if we needed to call for an ambulance or for the cops or whatever, you 30 minutes. Mhm. That was fast. Yeah. Because they're coming from probably 40 to 50 miles away. Yeah. You know, and you need an ambulance, good fucking luck. Right. But people don't understand that. And they don't, like, especially in, in today's time of, and if you live in a metropolitan area, you call and you've got an ambulance at your doorstep within five to 10 minutes. Sure. You know, but what happens whenever we're so far and it's happened, you know, in our city where you call for an ambulance and there's not one coming because we're short staffed and all of the ambulances that we have
1: they're on calls right already yeah yeah it's bombed it's yeah. it's completely bombed um so um my fiance uh is also on the police department but uh uh only ab- about 10 years and so but we've been together eight years you mm-hmm. know so uh, we've been together most of the time as she's progressed through her career. And so when she was on patrol, we would talk about the calls and, and how they play out and cars that were stopped, you know, proactive stuff, like looking yeah. for bad people doing bad stuff. Yeah. In bad areas. They they can't. They, yeah. I mean, maybe, I don't see how they still could, but they couldn't at that time and numbers have gotten worse. And so... And it's no discredit to them because they're they're doing the job the way that the job comes down the pipe. But you got to have that skill set, you know, because to, to get rid of legitimate lasting problems in areas, you have to know that problem, the people involved in the problem, how the problem works, what it looks like. And that takes time. That takes uh, a skill set that is an on-the-job thing that you develop for the most part and so, you know, I really worry about what happens, say, again, in five or ten years. What does your average firefighter or cop or paramedic look like? You know, because yeah. you have to have them. Yeah. And if people aren't meeting standards and you continue to lessen the standards, at what point does that diverge where it is better for the public to hire private services? Because they're just simply more efficient. Yeah. And now you have that whole can of worms.
0: Yeah. Well, and who can afford that? Sure. I mean, I can't afford to hire private security. Right. You know,
1: it (laughs) seems in the last couple of years, like, what you can afford doesn't really matter that much. It's like, Uh, here's what's happening. Figure it out, you know? And um, I think that there's some, like, I know that there's that saying, you know, like, uh, hard times create resilient people. Resilient people create (laughs) easy times. Easy times create soft people, whatever. Yeah. These, These are hard times for a lot of people, you know? And so, hopefully, it makes another great generation. Yeah. Um, well, and
0: I think it will. I, th- I think you'll see a course correction.
1: Mm-hmm. You'll,
0: you'll have to now, but how bad does it get before that happens? I don't know. I mean, I've been encouraged recently with some of the new people that we've been getting on the fire department that have been just like, okay, yes, they get yeah. it. And they're here for the right reasons. At the same time, I have also been very discouraged with some of the new people that I've seen coming in of like, there is no way this person has no business in this career field at all. Yeah. And and it's not a a knock on that person. It kind of is a little bit because they need to be a little bit more self-aware. Right. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that of this isn't your, you're not going to succeed in this career field. Right. You're just not cut out for it, which is, that's fine. Yeah. it's a hundred percent fine you can do go do something else that you'll be great at just this isn't the thing for you yeah and i think that goes back to that whole standards thing that you were talking about of we have to be responsible for that and not lower standards but at the same time how do you get enough you people have to have yeah you got to have firefighters so it's yeah, I don't. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. Anyway, how, yeah, did, how did you get into nonprofit work? <laughs> <laughs> Let's change the subject before I get on a soapbox. Well,
1: uh, so, but I do want to add one thing to that because okay. when I was down at the academy, there was a similar sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a, a guy that came through. He's a good guy, you know, bright-eyed. Like it hadn't gotten on him yet, but you yeah. could tell if he uh, kept that like core reason why he wanted to do the job, that he'd be a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was in really bad shape. And so the first question was, like, how did he get accepted into the class? Because it's obvious that yeah. this guy is not at the standards. And, you know, PT doesn't get any, more, any easier as it goes along. And so fairly quickly it reached a point where it was a danger to this guy's health to stay on pace with the rest of the class because it wasn't like he was at the lower tier of the class. He was head and shoulders behind everybody else to the extent where I, I, if I remember right, I think an ambulance got called on him twice. Dang. And so there was this moment where, you know, there had to be this conversation had that was like, Hey man, this is, this is nothing personal. Like the, all of the potential is there, but this legitimately (laughs) <laughs> you know, like this is some serious cardiovascular strain, man. Yeah. Uh, and those are really difficult conversations to have. But the reality is the job is not for everyone. It just is not. Yeah. And the I think the mistake that often made is made is, well, maybe these aspects of the job are good for this person yeah well then you need to keep them on that career track and that's not the way things work people get bounced around they get moved around yeah it's such a weird thing to be this entity that is sort of paramilitary yeah but you know in its function is not also yeah it always baffled me how like you could be out and about on patrol and uh at any moment right be put in a situation where you have to take away somebody's rights Maybe for a long period of time, up to including their life. But you have to write a memo to get AA batteries for your mic pack.
0: <laughs> well, that's the military, too. But, you know, yeah.
1: Uh, okay, man. You're, I'll find some time to write a memo. You know, and yeah. that's where you get that, like, this is just the solution to the problem. You know, mm-hmm. but the amount of those instances where it was like, what? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. The bureaucratic you know? bullshit. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, it it always surprised me, I think, even though I had a little bit a little bit of experience in the private sector and then going into first response where it was like this is just a Tuesday and it's like nobody bats an eye at this being like why why do we do this this way? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, because that's, we've we do. always done it this right. way. Right. Yeah, because yeah. we do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with working with government you know cuz i mean you're basically you're your government entity so it's you're going to have that bureaucratic red tape so even down on the ground doing the work there's still things you have to have to worry about there's still paperwork that has to be done if you lose equipment or whatever right. you got to there's paperwork so yeah.
1: they they become very big clunky machines mm-hmm. you know not very nimble
0: yeah which is probably part of the problem with you know the course correction of keeping standards or modifying standards or whatever nothing changes in a hurry yeah so and when you know the situation that everybody's been put in the past couple years with losing people and needing to hire but not having people to hire and you know covid and the just the state of the country yeah it's been really tough on police departments and fire departments of trying to go, okay, we need to pivot hard. You just can't, you you can't get the organization to move that much. I mean, you're talking about, you're trying to turn the needle 10 degrees. You might get it a half a degree,
1: right? You know, well, in in public service, there's so many people that have a vested interest in the decision making of that public service group, Mm -hmm whether they actually do or not. And I don't mean that in a dismissive elitist way. I mean it in the sense of like, I can have an opinion about how a guy at Subway makes a sandwich. That is still just simply my opinion because I don't work at Subway and I don't know how they're supposed to make sandwiches. And so, and I think that's a hard thing for people to move past is the idea that you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And so, and I think the, the people that have tenure that are leaving too, I see it, all right, honestly, what I hear mostly is that a lot of them, there's this kind of existential question. Like, have I made a huge mistake by dedicating this time and this sacrifice for this society that hates me because of how I look, right? I mean, because that's ultimately what it is. Is um, So you've made this decision about who I am as a person based on my appearance because yeah. I rocked up in these clothes. And because of that appearance you know everything about how I think and feel and act and do. Well, that sounds strangely suspicious to some of your accusations. So, is there, is it possible for us to meet in some middle ground here? Because yeah. at the end of the day, we're all just the same. We recognize that these things are problems. How do we work together to sort them out? But when you have a big clunky machine with so many people that have a vested interest in it, whether they actually do or not, it becomes extremely inefficient, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's, to get, AA batteries, you got to write a memo because then it's not about the efficiency of the process. It's about not being accountable for its outcome. Yeah. And so then that's when, at least for me, that's when I started to realize like a lot of this is really about, uh, well, it's not always about, um, going out there and, and, and just trying to be a public servant. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's, it's often about other things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is unfortunate because, you know, I think most people get in these career fields, you know, like you were talking about earlier of leave it better than I found it. I want to be of service to my community. I want to do good things and help people. Mm -hmm. And it just, it gets overshadowed with all of that stuff. And then again with the, you know, well, you wear this uniform, so you're this. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that everybody screams about with, you know, the race thing and you can't judge a book by its cover just because I'm this, you know, ethnicity or whatever doesn't mean this. Well, don't turn it around and just because somebody wears this uniform say this is what they are because they wear this uniform. Sure. You know, you you have to judge everybody. Actually, you shouldn't judge anybody really, but you got to let people be their own people and take them at who they are and not who you assume they're going to be. And, you know, in our career fields, there were some things and there is some things that we have to make assumptions about, you know, whenever you roll up on a call, you have to, you know, from the information that you're given, you know, you have to make some assumptions, but you also have to keep an open mind and be able to, course correct and change with how the situation goes. You know, if every time I rolled up to a fire, I just assumed that, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to go to the right, we're going to put water on it and it's going to go out. I wouldn't be very successful putting out fires Yeah, because everyone's different. Every situation is different. So you have to take it, you know, situation by situation, which is how we should be dealing with people in general is person to person
1: sure and yeah stop
0: trying to lump people into groups because it makes you feel better
1: yeah you know well i mean same in police work so you know the call you get is often not the call you go on i mean there are yeah. some that you know shootings things like that you're probably gonna find somebody that's got shot you know uh, sound shots may certainly turn into a shooting that kind of thing but Yeah, it's not at all uncommon to show up to like a call on a legally parked car and everybody there speaks Dutch and there's a donkey involved and you got to figure it out. It's you, you know, like (laughs) uh, figure it out, man. And so I think it was really just that inconsistency of you have to have abstract thinking, very capable, on the fly, intelligent, dynamic people, but make sure that they peel their bananas Appropriately, like how many people do we have in this decision making? pro like who, what are we yeah. doing? But I don't know, we could talk all day about that kind of stuff. So, nonprofit work, nonprofit, non-profit work. work. How did you get
0: involved in nonprofit work?
1: Yeah. So, um, as I said, I was retired, <clears throat> excuse me, a while ago for a PTSD diagnosis um, uh, that arose out of some stuff that happened when I was undercover. Uh, so, There's kind of a story to it. Uh, Truth be told, parts of it were fairly contentious. Um, But what it boils down to is that I was sent for an evaluation. Uh, I saw a doc, well, I I met the guy. Uh, He had me take about uh, six hours ish worth of tests. So I took all these tests on a computer. He called me back for another visit and said, hey, you failed, uh, you have PTSD and you have PTSD to the extent where you will not likely improve within a year and you can no longer perform the full and unrestricted duties of a police officer. And I said, well, what, what, what do we do? And he said that, that, you know, I prepare this, it goes to HR, HR sends it to the retirement board and the retirement board then makes a decision on what happens with you. That's what they told me at the time. So all that gets kicked back to HR HR then says, "Hey, looks like you're retired. Um, We'll we'll sort all this out with the retirement board." And I was still in this place. That's like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, wait, yeah, hang on. (laughs) uh, So they sent it to the retirement board. You know, the whole process was very like uh, vague and very um, closed off. You know, like you could know what you could be told and if you had any questions good luck finding somebody who's going to answer them because nobody wants to be the person that answers your questions and so there's a lot of a lot of limbo time like you get a call and then we'll call we'll call you soon you know well soon is like two months three months yeah and you just don't hear from anybody so I end up going to see uh, one of the department's clinicians for treatment because the retirement board said, we don't disagree with the diagnosis, but the police department hasn't made any effort to treat this guy. So, well, yeah, figure it out. So, they send me to someone. She, her initial, you know, that first visit is, hey, I don't make a determination on whether or not this is a result of your employment or not. I'm simply here for the therapeutic process, right? turns out that that's sort of true. You know, there is an evaluation that's taking place within that, and it's it's not confidential. They do tell you that. Um,
0: Which is not the best way to do therapy.
1: Well, they're just having me go sit on the couch at HR. I mean, it would be faster for everybody and save money, honestly. You know, because it's like the – and what she had said in that initial visit was, this happened in like 2013. And I said, yeah. And she was like, that was a while ago. I said, yeah. And she said, why are you just now coming to me? And I said, I don't know. I asked to see someone. (laughs) And they told me I couldn't, Uh, which is part of the story. And so uh, her her process was good. Um, There were good things within it, but there was definitely, certainly this feeling of like, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do with this. And so I'm still stuck in this process, right? Like this doctor has told me I can no longer be a cop, but the retirement system has now told me we're not going to retire you. They have to either fix you or their person has to say you're unfixable. Well, each one of these people start out by saying, I don't determine (laughs) how this happened in the first place. So all of that said, I go see that doctor, right? She makes her recommendation, which is this guy can no longer do the job. And alluded in her evaluation to, it is my belief that this likely was a result of these things that happened on duty. I then have to be evaluated by the retirement board's doctor, who then says, yeah, I agree with the diagnosis. However, I'm not sure if it's because of work or not. Um, So they uh, then decide to send everything off to another evaluator on the East Coast uh, and that person who they've contracted with in the past is sort of like a clinical mediator, so to speak. <laughs> that guy comes back and says, I'm not sure why you sent this to me. It's all here. Like, it's, yeah, this is a result of an extraction that happened because he was undercover. Yeah, the guy has PTSD. Uh, so all of this takes place over a long span of time. Uh, at one point, uh, they followed me. I mean, it, it's just wacky sort of stuff where it's like, "What?" I just want to talk to someone to process this process. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: I just want to get better.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, there there's history there. Like, I had asked for help. I said, you know, hey, at that time, my, my wife had come to me and said, look, you know, you've been on a little bit, but there is something different from this extraction to now. You are not the same person yeah and clinically i've validated where she was coming from but also it's sort of it's hard to see it yeah and so i i notified them of that and said hey she she said this i'm telling you because she's a psych i feel like it's the good troop thing to do i don't really know what to make of it i don't know if it's had an impact on my job or not i don't feel like it has but i'm also undercover you know it's not like yeah that people expect me to seem like a normal person right yeah uh, for what that's worth, but so anyways, I'm caught in this awful pipeline that never really meaningfully results in any sort of therapeutic benefit. It's all, uh, are you broken, and whose fault is it?
0: Yeah, not. Hey, let's get you fixed and get you back to work.
1: Right. So, uh, I end up getting retired. I was non-dutyed. Uh. The person who notified me of this, who I'd worked for in the past and, and do have a relationship with, when she, as it was taking shape that I was on my way out, at one point, she called to notify me about some of the decisions that had been made and cried on the phone. <laughs> yeah, so just at each step, it was like, what? It, what is this? You know. And there was this guy who, uh, this officer that a lot of us had worked with who did kill himself. And, uh, you know, at the time, knowing the guy, as things got worse and darker, at one point, apparently, he had started to um, drill, like, cut out portholes in his home because he thought he was being followed. He thought he was being watched. And uh, it was hard for a lot of people to not dismiss that as crazy. Yeah. But then I was called into a meeting at one point where I was given a, a list of questions on my my whereabouts one day when I went I went to go buy a, buy a bag of popcorn I just happened to go to a store on Prospect because I was working out of Center Zone and uh, apparently they felt like something was up and so the cat now was out of the bag it was you need to answer these questions about your whereabouts and I said what you know what have I done and they said we're just you know we're just gotta keep tabs on you making sure everything is okay and it's like that's the opposite of how why not just ask me and then it made me really angry, if I'm honest, Jeremy, because I remember that dude. And the first thought that I had was, did you follow him? Was he right? Because now you're saying you did it.
0: Yeah, that is.
1: Oh. So, nonprofit work. <laughs> so, as I'm in this experience, I start to encounter more people who are in specifically the nonprofit space that deals with mental and behavioral health for veterans and first responders. And their experiences had been similar, some worse, some not as bad, but similar. And so the reality was that if this was the, what you got, if you got access to it at all, we could build something this bad, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> we could <can laughs> at least try our hand at that bar. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was involved, uh, after, you know, being a, a pretty heavy duty volunteer at another organization um, in in helping another nonprofit kind of get get rolling to to be in that space to offer mental and behavioral health services to veterans and first responders. And, you know, one of the things that's ironic is the amount of money that's been raised and then given back to these entities to provide services that so many people were denied just years ago. I mean, we're not talking about 88 you know, we're talking yeah. about 2016. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, I mean, to the tune of like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And so it it can be disheartening because it, the, the question that often comes up to my mind is why is it this hard to just help people? And, you know, and there's so much of this process of, Yes, there's this problem. Yes, we need to do something about it. Look at me. I'm at this podium. This is egregious. We, we need to make sure these things never happen again. And then, you know, that funding for peer support doesn't show up or something like that. And so when you're paying attention and you start to see that more and more, you realize how limited quality accessible services are um, for first responders and veterans. And uh, I just I'd come from... A, a purposeful place. You know, it's almost the environment that I grew up in to do something for, my, for other people is, is almost an expectation. You know, it's like the ethos. And so, uh, I thought I'd been doing that in police work and in a lot of ways I had, you know, I'm proud of my time on the police department, but it became abundantly clear that people who really desperately need help and are likely not going to ask for it. Yeah. They need help. And there ain't a whole lot out there for them. And the stuff that you present them in a well-intended way can be harmful to them. Yeah. And until we address that, like until everybody wants to work together and stop worrying about whose fault is it, it doesn't matter at this point whose fault it is. But if it needs to be proven, it is. It's being proven in court Yeah. that the processes have to be better. Uh, but unfortunately, that seems to be the way forward, you know, is – if it costs seven hundred thousand dollars to prove that what we're doing is is the problem, well then we'll pay that money yeah and i I just don't know what to make of that, man.
0: I don't know. I wish i had <clears throat> wish I had a great answer for you, but I don't because I mean it's it is one of those things where it's it's a money thing. And it's a nobody wants to be responsible thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody like we've talked about wants to give lip service to it of, yeah, we care about our people. But when it comes right down to it, well, we're not going to do the things that really need to be done to make a difference. Because, I mean, you know, it's hard for people in our line of work to ask for help because we're the people who are supposed to be helping people. So that's one hurdle that you have to overcome. And then just the general culture of it's that same thing of, Oh, they're going to see a therapist or they're not handling the job well, or, you know, whatever. That's another hurdle that has to be overcome. And administrators, you know, they look at it as, okay, well, we're going to do this one little program over here and we'll see how it goes. And then nobody gets any buy-in in in it because Mm -hmm. they don't push it. They don't, really make it available to everybody or they put people in charge of it who have no business being in charge of it and it fails completely. Well, what does that do? That puts a bad taste in everybody's mouth that maybe would have tried it or did try it and had a bad experience. Yeah, It's like, come on, we got to do something different. So, and then having, you know, the nonprofits and all of that stuff that we do have available you know, is a great thing, but it's access to them, you know, because they're limited.
1: Bless you. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Do you cut that out?
0: Uh, no, I'm not. All right, cool. That. Come on, man. <laughs>
1: you're not creating more work for no, me. No, I was going to tell you you don't have to. <laughs>
0: um, but, you know, they're limited by funds and space and all that stuff because they have to fundraise. And then, okay, well, we've got this many people, you know, that can, when we can service this many people, well, it's a drop in the bucket, you know?
1: Yeah. it. it, it I try not to, you know, uh, point fingers up. I, I, so let me be clear here. That, number one, I'm not saying that's what you're doing. Number two, there's plenty of up to point fingers at. There's yeah. no, no argument about that. But, I feel like what often happens is when, you know, there's this dialogue about, like, whose job is it to fix it? At what point does somebody just pick it up? <laughs> just lift it, lift the damn thing up. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'll clarify it's everybody's job to fix it, you know, and we've talked about it before on the podcast. It's not a, it's, it can't be a top down solution, you know, administration or city government or whoever. I mean, you can you know, say this is how it's going to be all you want, we're pretty independent. And, you know,
1: that's a good way to get people to not do it. Exactly.
0: It has to be, the programs have to be provided and funded, but also there has to be buy-in. So there has to be, you know, we talked about leadership at all levels. So that means the people who have been through this stuff and come out the other side of it, you almost have a responsibility to talk about it. And say, hey, look, this is what happened. This is what I went through. This is where I'm at now. The help is there. And these are the steps that I took. And make it okay for the people behind you to do the same thing if they're struggling. But there has to be access to those things. So it it can't be a one or the other. It's got to be, there has to be a meet in the middle. And everybody, it's, so safety is everybody's responsibility, right? So it's your responsibility to take care of your partner. It's your partner's responsibility to take care of you, you know, and like on a fire ground, anybody can speak up and say, hey, you know, that chimney looks like it's going to fall. Okay, cool. Thanks, very junior guy for telling me that. Right. We're going to take precautions against it. Right. Whereas it's also the chief who's in charge of it. It's his responsibility to see that too. Mm -hmm. So safety, and this is a safety issue. So, it's everybody's responsibility to, if you see something, say something. Yeah. That's, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I, it's a, I hate, it's complicated, but it's complicated. (laughs) You know, like, there's the, there's the old school mentality. There's, that's, that's a thing, you know, and there's so much stigma that comes out of that, right? Like, if I admit that I have feelings, then people are going to ostracize me that may have been the way that it was, but that's really like holding to that belief is in a lot of ways, kind of a war of attrition. And what I mean is I, I talk at a couple, uh, universities. And so, uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, I was talking to, uh, it's a fire Academy and they're, they're getting ready to turn out and start to find a job. And they asked, uh, to come in, generally what I talk about, I've done it a couple times now, really is about how trauma affects your actual brain. Because what what I've learned is that that's the most accessible entry point into the subject because it's simply just the science, right? Like the understanding that we have to this point, granted, is that if you are repeatedly exposed to these threats, these fight or flight responses, it's going to change the way your brain functions, your amygdala, et cetera, and its relationship with other things like your prefrontal cortex or your personality, which is really important. And so when you tell people like, it's the same thing as saying, you know, Hey, now you've taken this job where you're going to be on a truck. It's entirely possible that you're going to slam your hand in the door of the truck. So let's talk about how to not slam your hand in the door of the truck, right? Everybody's like, okay, I have to go to like hand door slamming class. Yeah, It's moving that direction because you know, and, talking to all these young people who are taking up the mantle now, it really seems pretty normal for them. You know, there's somebody in every group that is like, yeah, I had this thing happen and I talked to this person and, and they just, it, it seems easier for people to normalize it. Where as the environment that I came up in, you know, in the mid two thousands, there were some people on the job that until somebody had, you know, like until your life had legitimately been in danger, you weren't respected. Yeah, um, And so I, I still think there's merit to the idea of showing that you understand the gravity of your work and you are squared away and you are prepared, even if you have a good time, right? Because when shit gets real, it's real and it happens fast. And so I don't need to be thinking about what you're doing and if you're doing it right. I expect you to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't even remember why we really got on this, like with the direction we were <laughs> headed with it. <laughs> yeah man I'm totally lost now. Oh the youngsters the yeah. norm, normalizing the normalizing whole thing. yeah. So it's weird like being involved in the nonprofit space you'll see recent retirees or people who are staring down that barrel that are like hey I've just realized all I know is this. So all I am is this and they want me to bring all of that back in a box on Tuesday and I don't know who the hell I am. I I know that I have two alimony payments and three kids that don't speak to me and i don't know how to just be some dude at target i don't know what that is and so as the the more old school people and it tends to be the respected ones which is why they're respected you know are are going over that hill first and that makes it easier for the young ones I then think that segues a little bit into the problem of sustainability of public service, right? Because if if you have somebody that's been on twenty years telling you, "Hey, this is this is twenty years of this job," yeah, of course you're going to leave at four, yeah. You know, like I could, in their head, it has to be like, "Look, I could go do anything. I wanted to do this." Yeah, they're throwing bricks at me, and this guy's saying it's going to ruin my life. I'm, it's time to go. Yeah. So you can't really fault them for that, but. You know, I think that stigma is going away. Uh, I think it just simply has to. Right now, it, it, everybody just accepts that to do these things repeatedly, to not have that affect you, you probably are actually a sociopath. I mean, when you start to get into the process of, like, emotional response and stuff like that, yeah. well, hey, maybe that sounds cool if you're, like, icy guy getting ready to ram a door. I don't have any feelings. But when you freak out on your daughter – you know, for not taking the trash out. Not only have you told her how to regulate her emotions and what she's supposed to expect for herself as a standard, but potentially this is the kind of person she's going to look for later on in her life. Mm -hmm. And you've taught her all of that, you know, and I, and I think that sense of accountability, like when it's presented that way, that clicks with this sort of people because you've handed them that responsibility and that challenge. Like, hey, there are people that will help you through this process. People that have been there. People that know people that know what to do. But you got you to gotta climb the ladder. Yeah. you know. And so, at least for me, when it was presented in that way. Because I had, I had uh, an issue with alcohol for a little while. And when, when things were really bad and stuff like that. And that's the way that it was presented to me. You can continue to do what you're going to do. But here's the outcome and from this point forward whatever happens is nobody's fault but your own so stop acting you know stop acting like that yeah and i think it was that slap in the face that was like you're absolutely right you're absolutely right and then i got out from under all of that because it was just presented in that way like if if i want to be the sort of guy who who will intercept a bank robbery I should also be the same kind of guy who will do hard work to be the best dad that I can or the best husband or son or brother that I can. In a lot of ways, that part is way scarier, you know? So I think it's it's so much braver to be vulnerable. And now the sort of the idea of what bravery really is and encompasses is kind of changing. Yeah, I think it's hard for the for the old school crusty people to be like, oh, it's just part of the job. Yeah, Sure. Well, then tell them that. And recruitment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. See how that
0: works out for you. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, it's about being proactive, you know? I mean, we, most of us, some of us, I don't know, stay physically fit, right? You know, because we have a, there's a physical requirement to our job. Why wouldn't we stay mentally fit? You know, like go do your check-ins. Talk to a therapist if you need to. Talk to peer support if you need to. Why do we look at that any different than we would physical health? Yeah. You know? And that's where that mentality has to shift. And, you know, going back to that old crusty dude who's like, well, it's just part of the job. Okay, well, you're on your second, third marriage. You know, like you said, kids don't talk to you. Is that really the what you want to portray? Right for this career field yeah, because you're not getting people to come in if that's what they're seeing.
1: And, you know, I think sometimes people hold to this belief that it's like, it's the mark that they make in the time that they were there. And there's truth to that, but it's also fleeting. Like how many enigmatic guys or or, uh, men or women did you work with that six months after they retire, they're gone. There are people that have no idea who this person even was. Mm Mm-hmm. Give it three years, yeah. you are just like letters on the beach, man, just gone. And uh, I think as more time goes on and, and people see that and they start to understand that and be able to apply that to the likely outcomes for them, they start to then have that, oh, shit moment. You know, like I still have all this life to live and especially in first response. You can get in pretty early and get out pretty early and have a whole career. Yeah. Well, yeah, man, when they call 911, your phone's not going to ring anymore. Yeah. You know, so
0: there will be somebody else in that seat the next hour that you leave. A
1: hundred percent. There's a kid running around a track right now that is the next Joe Cool, Sergeant, Captain, whatever. Yeah. And those tend to be the people that are like, "I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do now." You know, not all of them. I'm not. None of this is anybody's actual fault. It's not like these are the ones who created this situation. Everybody sort of got themselves into this mess one way or another, but. The reality is, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think it's pretty undeniable that we're here now. Yeah. We've accepted that there's these prices that we haven't talked about in the past that are paid for doing these jobs. And it very much seems like the reason why that isn't always a popular thing to say is because people don't want to be responsible for it. We'll just get past that. Yeah. (laughs) Just get past that. Accept it. Or stop standing at the podium talking about what a tragedy these things are. You don't get to do both.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Either do something to fix it or shut the fuck up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think as somebody who was very proud to make it through the academy, right? Like I proved to myself that I I was the guy that could go up the stairs in that house, at least to myself. Um, uh, It rubs me the wrong way. You know, then when people are lauded as heroes and they have done questionable things when given time to think about it, because, mm-hmm. you know, having 15 years on, the decision to do something if people are in a burning car is not, nobody, it's going to be a rare person that is like, no, no, you know, nobody should do anything about that. Yeah, Everybody pretty much says somebody should do something. And you know, there's a handful of people that say, what, what should I do? How do, I, how do I address those? Those are uh, the ones that bring you back, right? Those are the ones you want. Um, dude, I totally forgot again. <laughs> it's just a, you know, honestly, what happens is like, I, get, I get so lost in just my memories of that time. Yeah. You know, and it's all so bittersweet because uh, I'm very, very proud of it. But in a lot of ways, I'm very, very disappointed in the way it treats each other, if that makes sense
0: yeah no yeah I,
1: um, but I know what it was it was it was principled principled sort of people now so uh, it, it rubs me the wrong way when when people sort of accept the praise for heroism because getting people out of a burning car while brave isn't always heroic it's just simply the right thing to do and it is commendable that you accept the risk to be the one to try to do that that's the commendable part bravery is what is the like what you do, Despite that fear, like, and so when people are looking for mental health services or or people are coming forward and saying that they're struggling in these careers and that is stifled in some way, that's terrible leadership. You're not, you are not doing the brave thing. You are doing the safe thing for yourself Mm -hmm. and that, Hey, look, if, if you can look yourself in the mirror at the end of the night and reconcile with that, good on you. This is your one ticket on this ride and that's how you want to spend it. But also don't expect everybody to agree with your uncomfortability, like uh, to agree with it so you avoid the uncomfortable reality of that. You know, that's not how you fix anything. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's uh, bittersweet because they're definitely still being sort of in this space, dealing weekly, if not daily, with people that are struggling. Almost all of them have this giant fear of the administrative side of things. What's going to happen to me? Yeah. You know, and it just sucks to see it because they're these people that are just floating in this limbo um uh, you know, and through as all this stuff has emerged the, as more things come to light like in the court system, it just sort of shows that sometimes even these commanders are put in positions where they're it bothers them like it, it can be traumatic for them to have to do something that they know that they're they are told that they have to do, but know that it is <laughs> A a shitty thing thing to do, like a terrible thing to do to someone. But also, I haven't really decided how much sympathy I have for that position, right? Like, you're cashing those checks, aren't you?
0: Yeah. That's something that I struggle with, too. Um, You know, because it's easy to sit here, you know, we sit on this podcast and we'll say, you know, leadership needs to do this or leadership needs to do that. But we're looking at it from one angle. Right. And I dare say it's the most important angle Mm because it's my opinion and my opinion is the only one that matters. (laughs) But there's so much. And, you know, since I got promoted and I'm in the position that I'm at now, you know, I was told before then, you know, as a firefighter, you get to see, you know, you're looking through a keyhole. Mm -hmm. And that's what your viewpoint is. And then whenever you get promoted to captain, you know, the the door gets cracked open a little bit and you get to see a little bit more. And then when you go, the higher up you go, the bigger picture that you get. And, you know, I think the position that I'm in now, because I work directly with a battalion chief, so I get to see a lot more than even a normal captain would, who is, you know, in charge of a crew. Um, I get to see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that other guys don't get to see. And there's a lot of decisions that are made, you know, that doesn't don't make sense to a firefighter of why would you do this? Well, we have to do this because of this, this, and this. And, you know, whenever you get up to that administration level of those battalion chiefs, deputy chiefs, directors, and then, you know, on the police department side, you, there's a lot more that goes into it of they're not just beholden to the people, you know, that are, that they're responsible for their employees. You know, they also have people that are over them at the city level and then they're worried about budgets and like things like that. So I can see where some of the decisions that get made, get made, Mm -hmm. but also it doesn't mean that I'm okay with it and doesn't mean that I don't think it needs to change. And that those people in those leadership positions need to have that bravery and that leadership to go, look, this, yes, X, Y, and Z is important. We 100% agree X, Y, and Z is important. But issue A, our employees' mental and physical well-being and the ability to retain them and make sure that they don't. You know, they're not having all this lost time off of work. We're not having to send them to treatment, you know, inpatient facilities.
1: Sure. Or We're time doing, off. Yeah. or well, ti- Because
0: yeah. that's creating X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Like problem A is creating all of this other shit. We would save so much money if we would just be proactive and put these programs in place. Yes, it might cost a little bit to get them started. They will pay for themselves in the long run. Because you won't have to pay for that instead of $80,000 for somebody to go to inpatient treatment, you're only paying, you know, what, a couple hundred bucks once or twice a year for them to go talk to somebody? Mm -hmm. Why does that not make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, or like to be a a little more focused on it, like in in the law enforcement world, in the police world, right? Like payouts – for something that a cop did, they're expensive and yep. they they seem to be fairly frequent. But when somebody has more emotional range, and by that what I mean is emotional intelligence, the ability to say, like, I am this, I am frustrated, which sounds so basilar. But most of us are, I like this, I don't like this. That's about it. Mm-hmm. What are the long-term implications from looking into that ability to regulate emotion on these complaints right? because if if you're if you are able to regulate your emotions better in situations uh, in in day-to-day situations, you're more able to do that in high speed situations ergo more likely to not lose your your shit yeah. and bounce somebody's head off a sidewalk and you know create this, Lawsuit that cost what? Five million? Two million? Somewhere in that range. Yeah. You know, and so it, it just seems often to be this issue where it's like it's just such a big, complicated thing that it's not my problem.
0: You know, and I get that that the whole it's complicated thing. Yeah. But when you <clears throat> when you boil it right down to it, it's really not. It's not that complicated. It's really I mean, not. we just spelled it out. Yeah. Because if you just be halfway proactive Mm -hmm. it mitigates all these other problems so spend some money on the front end it's like so you're a car guy Mm -hmm. right you like to turn wrenches Uh so what happens if you're not proactive and change your oil
1: well your engine is going to have a problem exactly yeah
0: that's what we've been doing with firefighters and cops mental health yeah for years and years and years we haven't been changing the oil
1: well, and beyond that, we've been telling them that uh, the oil doesn't need to be changed. Yeah. So whoever's telling you that is an idiot and a weakling. Yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, God, that's the best analogy I've ever come up with on the podcast. You. Well done, man. You'd be <laughs> yes! you good luck. It's perfect.
1: Yeah. Don't change an oil. Yeah. But, I mean, it is,
0: and, and I've harped on this shit about being proactive for a while, and I think it's very easy in our career fields, you know, you were on a proactive unit, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit different, but for us, like, there's not a whole lot that we do. That's proactive. You oh, know, yeah. Have we, you seen
1: backdraft? Okay. Super that, proactive. That, I mean, that's always an option.
0: Uh, well, it's uh, that is the greatest documentary that has ever been made about firefighters. Um, that and uh, Chicago fire. I mean, it's exactly like that. <laughs> oh my God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> where was i uh, uh proactive proactive so like yes we have fire prevention you know organization and all of that stuff and they they do things like smoke detectors and yeah. that's not what i'm talking about Sure. like we're not gonna go out get in our fire truck go over you know to house b and go hey you're about to have a fire yeah. we need you to come out and then we're gonna get all set up and then as soon as it starts we're gonna you know, we're going to put it out. Mm-hmm. That's not how shit works. Like we sit there and we wait. Right. And then the call comes in and then we respond. Yeah. We've been doing that with our mental health. We've been doing that with a lot of things. Yeah. It, like I said, an ounce of prevention prevents pounds of pain Yeah, in the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the things too, that was surprising, like getting into working with folks like this is, we're all really kind of dealing with the same things. Like uh, what I mean is they could be different in their like composition, right? So you have an issue with your family, you have an issue with finances, you have an issue with whatever, but they tend to be the same core emotions, right? Like anger, frustration, fear, all of those things. And until it is even more accepted to just call things by their name, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's a big hurdle for the stigma in these fields is if there's this belief that you can't be afraid and both still do your job. I, I was a UC. I was afraid often because if those things go bad, you know, the generally their if their intention is to ambush you and take your money, they're going to shoot you and take your money because they think that you are a drug dealer or a drug unit. They don't yeah. They're not likely to just randomly shoot at the police. It happens, but not likely. But yeah, they'll smoke a crackhead. Whatever. Yeah. You know, and so uh the you know, I'd read years ago that bravery isn't the absence of fear, it's the mastery of fear. And that like stuck with me. Yeah. And so I don't know if maybe it was just getting into the career a little the twenty five, a little older and, and having had these other experiences, but it just always seemed so weird and backwards to me that people were just pretending. just so often like pretending, Yeah. but you know, as I've gotten older and gotten more involved in these things, I realized that people are just dealing with the sadness, the fear, you know, what if this was my daughter? What, you know, is my house secure enough, you know, at any moment? Cause when you see, when you're outside of the bubble, you can never get back in you know, so, like, just on the drive home from here, I'm going to pass all these places where all of these things happened, and I think about them on every drive, yep. you know, and just call them by their name. Like, yeah, we handled that situation, and this guy did this thing, but this baby died in the process, and that's terrible, and there's the loss of all this potential in this life, and what and put your head around all of this and what it means, and, and I, it's normal for people to just want to avoid that, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. but... It goes somewhere. It doesn't go away. Yeah. It goes somewhere. Yeah.
0: That uh that box in your head that you try to store all that shit in. Yeah. It's it's not an ironclad safe.
1: Sure. It's like everybody's garage that doesn't park their car in it, right? You know, yeah. it's like you if if your garage looks like a lot of people's garage, you don't show it off. You yeah. know, it's like <laughs> yeah. big wheels and Fuck you, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did well. We didn't look at your garage. <laughs>
0: uh, it's a it's a travesty right now. It's uh, yeah.
1: But you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like that's where the I'll get to it. That's where the I'll get to this stuff goes. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah. And then you can't open your garage door at one point, and then it's yeah. you know, and then then you're a hoarder. Yeah. But if it, it works the same way, like bottling that stuff up works the same way. Yeah. And that's where you have that moment where you you know the classic I yelled at my kid over spilled milk one of those kinds of stories. Yep. And people they feel distant their loved ones become distant because they don't they don't know what to do but they want to do something it's like watching this person drift away on this boat and you don't know what to do and people intuitively know all that and it, it drives all these wedges in relationships and then so you're going to work more apathetic about your cause you know more suspicious of everyone around you and and all of these things and it just leads to this long tenure of always being in this dark space. But it doesn't have to. Like, that's just what we have agreed to do is deal with these things. But I I don't think people know that what they're also agreeing to do is deal with the stuff that comes from that typically by themselves because that is often the standard. We all know it. We all feel very similar about it, but don't talk about it.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that needs to change. Yeah. Because, like you said, we're all going through it. So somebody speak the fuck up and say something about it, right? you know, and say that, yes, it's okay to not be okay Yeah, because like what you just described is perfect. You know, you're, yes, it's, you're going through this stuff, the longer you stay on the job and then, so you're drifting Mm -hmm. and you know, it's driving wedges in relationships like you said, and everybody just kind of accepts it. That's part of it. It doesn't have to be. Right. That's, I mean, you can do this job and be a happy, healthy individual. I know happy, healthy firefighters who have great families and who do great stuff and are great firemen. They deal with their shit. Yeah. Now, does that mean that they go see a therapist every week? No. Right. You know, but they've found a way to deal with it. Yeah. And you have to find a way to deal with it in your own way. Yeah. So whether that's a hobby, whether that's, you know, seeing a therapist or doing nonprofit work or what it, whatever it is that is a constructive coping mechanism that's healthy, you have to find that for yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, there was this guy I used to know pretty well, and he would always say, find people that give a shit about you and you can give a shit about them. And he's, he's right. You know, it's because you know, one of the things that comes with the job is a lot of death, you know, and you just Mm -hmm. see it a lot. Um, oftentimes like in the moment of death, like you're there when people die. I don't know about you, but I never saw people who were preoccupied with all the dumb shit that comes with life. It was always like what I would have done, who I would have been around, where I would have gone. Yeah. And that's another thing too about, you know, and then, so then You know, that next day you're just on the couch. But I I get it because it's it's also just very heavy. And I think that's why we appreciate, you know, like you watch nature documentaries, say, for example, and there are those animals where one is weak or injured, two will stay with that animal, for example, right? Because they know, like... But a lot of animals, as soon as you're like slowing the pack down, you're DRT. you know, like, that's it. And I think that's why we innately like hyenas. I've never met anybody that likes a hyena because they're just (laughs) so unlikable in their character. Yeah. And it's those elements. And I think that's why it's so hard for me to really fully respect the idea that it's complicated to be in decision, you know, that process where you have to make decisions about what happens to people that are struggling because uh, nobody says that they like the hyena, even yeah. though why they do what they do makes absolute sense. And yeah. I think that's what separates us. That's that's what separates us yeah. is the ability to say, it's not how much is in my bowl. It's do you have enough? That's what gets us through it.
0: Yeah. Well, and especially with the fact of <clears throat> the reasoning why most people get in this career field is to help people. You know, so you're sitting there looking at leadership not helping like not doing those things and it's like well wait a minute that's we all signed up together to you know be the solution yeah you're actively preventing that yeah so yeah dude i totally get it totally get it
1: yeah there was a um yeah well it just it's complicated as uh as anti <laughs> stop saying it's
0: complicated it's not complicated
1: it's uh <laughs> No, I mean the the dynamic, the people, the personalities, right? Yeah. You know? uh, Yeah. You're right, though. It's not not complicated to help people. What's complicated is the concern about how other people are going to feel about what you did. Yeah. And that's only complicated because you complicate it. Yeah. You know, that's... I mean, one of the things... I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I'm going to be curious what she has to say in another 10... 15 years of like what I was like as a dad when she was young because I treat her like she's just a person. She's, she's 11. So she's a a human being that just doesn't know a whole lot, you know? And so I always tell her like everything is either to keep you safe or make you a good person. Um, But I'm always kind of curious what her perspective on certain stuff is going (laughs) to be because I I just talk to her flatly about things. and, And it's very important for me as a dad that she is safe and she is a good person you know and 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 i think unfortunately to understand what a good person is you have to be around some bad ones you know and that's uh and sometimes that means that what they do is going to be pointed at you and you know that's a hard lesson but i think for some people that's that's the only way you accept that it is real yeah i know that makes me think of you know a lot of a lot of the folks that I talk to there's always this disbelief of like but I can't believe that they did this to me like what so when it was Dan but yeah Dan was doing this shit and when it was Jan yeah. but yeah Jan was doing this shit well what shit were you doing I wasn't doing any well then yeah man it's you too yeah we'll yeah. see
0: that takes us back to that whole where everything's a simulation and everybody's an npc
1: yes it, dude
0: and I'm the <laughs> I'm the center of the world so it should work out exactly how i want it to work out
1: perfect yeah well if that's true <laughs> I, yeah i could use a loot chest <laughs> i have gonna come across one of those in a while
0: oh man well yeah thanks for doing the show man I yeah for sure it. this was good
1: so you know any good jokes
0: yeah i know several um Are you familiar with uh, the guys that do doc talk on Instagram? No. The dad jokes?
1: I was just holding the mic just. (laughs) (laughs) That's it.
0: Yeah. Um, Those guys, you should look them up. They're hilarious. And it's, it's, uh, what's the one, the one that I saw last night, I was cackling about it and told Rachel and she's like, oh my God. So it's, they're very deadpan. So I'll I'll try to do it justice. Yeah. I think we should close on a joke. Yeah. All right. Um, so I started taking Viagra for my sunburn. It doesn't cure anything, but it keeps the sheets off my legs at night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Well, good, man. I'm glad. Aloe. That's an option too. Uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's clever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. So I'll show you some after we get done. All right.
0: All right, everybody. Well, Josh, thanks for stopping by. Do you have any closing thoughts?
1: No. No, just be, just be nice people everybody's everybody's got their shit that they're dealing with and yeah and just be nicer to people a little bit just just a little i know it's tough (laughs) i know it's tough especially in traffic just uh everybody's fighting a battle man yeah
0: all right well everybody thanks for stopping by if you are struggling reach out there are resources out there um if you know somebody that's struggling reach out let them know you care um let them know what resources are available and uh again thanks josh for coming on the show i appreciate it conspiracy
1: theory show absolutely all right let's do it
0: um yeah
1: and uh we'll see you next time